For over 70 years, Oshner has been dedicated to cancer research and new cancer treatment development, bringing innovations to the fight against cancer, including more clinical trials than anywhere else in the region. I'm Dr. Jonathan Mizrahi with the Oshner Cancer Institute. One of the most common complaints I hear from my patients when I first meet them to discuss their cancer diagnosis and treatment plan is that there is a lack of reliable, available information about cancer. Evaluating what is or isn't a credible source of information on the internet is challenging, even for the most experienced of Googlers. We are seeking to fill that gap by providing the public with understandable, reliable information about cancer. Join me as we talk to healthcare experts at Oshner about what you need to know should you or a loved one receive a cancer diagnosis. Welcome to All In Against Cancer. Liver cancer is one of the most common types of cancer worldwide and represents the third most common cause of cancer-related death globally. About 75% of liver cancers arise from the liver cells, and these cancers are called hepatocellular carcinoma, or HCC. The majority of the remaining liver cancers arise from the bile ducts that traverse the liver, and these cancers are referred to as biliary tract cancers or cholangiocarcinoma. In this episode of the All In Against Cancer podcast, we talk with Oshner medical oncologist, Dr. Lingling Du, and interventional radiologist, Dr. Tyler Sando, to learn more about the diagnosis and staging of liver cancer, what treatment options are available to patients, and how to screen and reduce risk for developing this malignancy. So welcome, Dr. Lingling Du, Dr. Tyler Sando to the show. I really appreciate you guys taking the time to come on and uh, have this important conversation with me. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. So before we get into the meat of it, I'd just like to hear a little bit of background on both you guys' introduction. So let's start with Dr. Du. Tell me a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and how you got to be in uh, Osher, New Orleans. My name is Lillian Du. I'm one of the medical oncologists in New Orleans. I specialize in uh, GI cancer, especially in uh, liver cancer. I was trained. I was originally from China. I trained at WashU for fellowship, and then after I graduated, uh, about five years ago, I came to Oshner because of the beautiful weather of New Orleans. She says this during the summer. Yeah, super well, hot. I, I actually met Dr. Du when she was training at WashU. I was there, but a, a, a youngling under her. And <laughs> she, I like to tell her she taught me everything I know. All right. Well, uh, Dr. Sandow, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got to be here. So I'm originally from Baton Rouge. I went to medical school in Shreveport where I met my wife. And um, she is from New Orleans. And if you know anything about women from New Orleans. They have a strong pull to come back to New Orleans. So my wife and I both did our residency training at Oshner in New Orleans. I went away to do another specialized fellowship in interventional radiology with a focus on interventional oncology at Georgetown in Washington, D.C., and then came back. And I've been back at Oshner in New Orleans for about four years. Again, my, my focus is more on the oncology spectrum of interventional radiology. Awesome. Well, I, I certainly understand the, the spell that New Orleans women cast upon their spouses. My, my wife is from here as well. So hence my, my working in New Orleans as well. <laughs> so let's, let's get into it. Um, I'll start with the first question uh, to you, Dr. Dew. Why don't you ex- explain to me what the different types of liver cancer are? Liver is actually the most common site for a lot of cancer to spread to. But if we talk about cancer that exclusively started within the liver, there were basically two types of cancer. I always tell my patients to think about liver as a big tree. So there are tree leaves, which are the liver cells, and also the branches and the trunk, which are the bile ducts. So if the cancer started 
from the liver cell that is liver cancer, like hepatocellular carcinoma, we call it HCC. If the cancer started from the tree trunk and the tree branches, those are bile duct cancer, but that's also in the liver as well. That's a great explanation. I think I might have to steal that one from you. And, and we'll get into it, how different these cancers are. And really grouping them together is a little bit arbitrary because they are coming from the liver, but they're entirely different in how they behave, what the risk factors are, and how we treat them. So uh, speaking of the risk factors, I'll go back to you, Dr. Dugan, with this one. is Talk to me about between these two types of liver cancer, HCC, hepatocellular carcinoma, and biliary tract cancers, the cholangiocarcinoma. Tell me about the different risk factors for each of those. So for liver cancer, HCC, um, the most common risk factor is actually cirrhosis. Cirrhosis meaning um, when patients have chronic kidney, uh, chronic liver disease leading to scarring of the liver, then people will be at high risk of developing liver cancer. Actually, the most common cause of causing cirrhosis is actually um, hepatitis infection like HBV, Hep B infection, HC, Hep C infection, alcohol cirrhosis. Sometimes um, diabetes, obesity can make people at high risk of developing fatty liver. So fatty liver in the long run, some people also develop cirrhosis because of the fatty liver, and those will be a big risk factor for developing HCC liver cancer as well. Sometimes there's some hereditary disease that runs in the family, such as hemochromatosis. These patients tend to have a lot of iron deposited in the liver, and that will lead to cirrhosis and increase the risk of developing a liver cancer or uh, a rare disease called alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, people will be at higher risk of developing liver cancer as well, but that is very rare. And sometimes uh, when patients have hepati chronic hepatitis B infection, even when they don't have any cirrhosis at all, because of the chronic inflammation, people can develop a, a liver cancer without any scarring, without any cirrhosis as well. For bile duct cancer, um, to be honest, cirrhosis itself also put people at high risk of developing bile duct cancer as well. Uh, but the most one of the most common cause is uh, there's a disease we call PSC, primosclerosing cholangitis. Those people would be at much higher risk of developing bile duct cancer. Sometimes when um, people are born with congenital disease like congenital biliary tract abnormalities or some genetic disorders such as Lynch syndrome, like uh, familial cancer disease that runs in the family, they will be at high risk of developing bile duct cancer as well. Obesity and diabetes is also a risk factor for developing bile duct cancer. And in other countries, there's a rare parasite infection, liver fluke infections that will put people at high risk of developing bile duct cancer as well. So I think what's interesting when you look at both of these cancers, HCC and biliary tract cancers, is that in HCC, pretty much everyone has underlying liver disease, right? So it's incredibly uncommon to get a hepatocellular carcinoma without some underlying liver disease, most commonly will be cirrhosis. Now, what causes it can be, you know, very varying things, as you mentioned. Now, with bile duct cancer, we often have no idea why someone got it, right? We know some risk factors, but um, not all. Most mm -hmm. patients, right? Would you say come in and don't have any underlying liver disease? Right. So it is interesting that dichotomy. So next, I want to talk about screening. So I'm going to ask you, uh, Tyler, about this. So you know, we know screening for other cancers, breast cancer, we have mammograms, colon cancer, we think of colonoscopies, prostate cancer, PSA, um, but there actually is screening for liver cancer. So talk me through how we manage uh, screening for this population. Correct. Like Ling Ling said, the patients with that will eventually go on to develop HCC tend to have a background of cirrhosis. So we know that those patients have some degree of liver dysfunction to start. And in our practice and in most practices, 
there is a there is a liver specialist that follows these patients with underlying liver dysfunction. So we have a great hepatology team that continues to follow these patients that have now been diagnosed with cirrhosis. The way that we survey patients with cirrhosis that may eventually go on to develop HCC, what we do is we'll do routine ultrasounds. And those ultrasounds will be done at, at six-month intervals. The purpose of that is to kind of see if there's anything that's starting to change within the liver. Ultrasound can be a little challenging for um, for some sites, but it tends to be one of the cheapest and most easily reproducible surveillance-type modalities for patients with cirrhosis. With those patients, sometimes we'll also add on a lab marker, which is called AFP or alpha-fetoprotein. Um, it's used kind of, uh, it, it doesn't have the same specificity as actually seeing a lesion with imaging, but it can kind of allude us to something that may be going on. So when that number rises to a certain degree, we start to get a little more suspicious. Now, the way that it works is every six months, these patients will have an ultrasound. And if everything looks fine, we continue to follow them routinely every six months. However, if a lesion starts to develop, we actually say, okay, well, there's a, a certain lesion size. And then we actually pay attention to how big the lesion is. If it's smaller than a centimeter, we tend to continue to follow it with ultrasound because we know that we're not going to get much more in terms of detail, much more detail with cross-sectional imaging such as CT or MRI. However, if the lesion on ultrasound looks bigger than one centimeter or if the AFP is rising unexpectedly, we would push to do a contrast-enhanced cross-sectional imaging study. Our best study to do is an MRI, but some patients that have pacemakers or artificial implants can't have that, and then we'll, we'll use a CT instead. We use certain type of um, timing with the contrast to help us gauge what the lesion looks like, and I'm sure we'll get to that shortly as we go along. Okay, great. That was a really excellent explanation. And just, again, talking about the two different types of liver cancer with biliary tract cancers, bile duct cancers, we really don't have screening because it's just much more rare. Right, and that's the challenge. We don't, because there's no background of an underlying liver dysfunction to really be following people. So we don't know. It's a rare and it shows up in normal people. Moving on next to signs and symptoms of liver cancer. So Dr. Dew, I'll pose this to you. What are the typical signs and symptoms of someone who is going to be diagnosed with one of these cancers? So since we do have this fabulous team of hepatologists, the liver doctor, and they do monitor uh, uh, most of the patients with cirrhosis and do the routine screening, everything Dr. Sando was talking about, uh, the majority of our patients actually came from these screening programs. When they did an ultrasound, they found something sp uh, suspicious that was follow um, with an MRI or CT scan with a confirmed diagnosis. So the good thing with these like, screening process is usually um, when these patients come to us, they are what we call asymptomatic, like it's still, hopefully it's still an early cancer and uh, they don't really suffer too much from it. But sometimes we do get patients that are like not going through the screening program, so they say end up in the emergency room because they've not been feeling well because the cancer has been growing. And when a liver cancer or a bile cancer, either one has been growing, People can have a lot of problems. Uh, the most common one is uh, pain. People can have a lot of pain in the right upper side of their stomach. That's where the uh, the liver lies. So people can have a lot of pain. Sometimes the pain can radiate all the way up to the right shoulder. Um, interestingly, liver cancer and bile duct cancer, when it's bad, it secretes toxin and make people very nauseated. So I do have a lot of patients, they cannot eat, they have nausea, vomiting all the time, they lose a lot of weight, they just feel very weak, very tired. 
And then、uh, sometimes when cancer spread to other parts of the body, say if it spread to the bone, people can also have bone pain and things like that. And then、um, when the liver is infiltrated with the cancer, or if the cancer is blocking the bile duct, causing an obstruction, a blockage, people can also present with what we call jaundice, like they look very very yellow. Okay, thank you for that explanation. Then moving to diagnosis. So often, folks in your department or you specifically,、uh, Dr. Sando, are, are making this diagnosis. So、um, with both of these types of liver cancer, how do we diagnose them? Sure. So when we talk about HCC, the most common primary form of liver cancer, we know that it occurs in a background of cirrhosis, and so we know that that liver looks、uh, fibrotic and nodular, and so we kind of that that gives us a baseline to be looking for a certain imaging pattern. And like I mentioned before, we use a we use a contrast enhanced study like a CT or an MRI, and we look at enhancement patterns over multiple times. So we'll we'll give contrast, and we'll look at a scan at a certain point in time, and then wait a little bit and look at it again, and look at it again. And those lesions then will show a certain pattern, and the pattern specific for HCC is what we call arterial phase enhancement. So the they show up, it gets real bright. Because tumors tend to feed on the arterial vasculature, and they have portal venous washout, so the normal blood supply to the liver comes from the portal vein, and the tumor feeds on arterial vasculature. So, because it's all got arterial vasculature, it enhances very early compared to the liver, and it becomes very dark compared to the liver on the later phase. That imaging characteristic accounts for about an 89% sensitivity and 96% specificity. At, for the diagnosis of HCC, so in most routine practices, a biopsy is not needed to diagnose HCC because we are so confident when we see that type of imaging pattern in the setting of cirrhosis that a patient has HCC. The tricky part becomes when, in the rare chance that they, the tumor or the lesion that we see doesn't fit that imaging pattern, and that tends to be the time where we might push towards a biopsy. Or if we know that the patient demonstrates what looks like an aggressive tumor pattern, and they might be getting a more、um, advanced type of treatment that might be more along the need for molecular characterization, those might be the two times where we say a biopsy is needed to establish a diagnosis of HCC and potentially guide further treatment.、Um, and then when it comes to biliary tract cancers, again, this occurs in the absence of cirrhosis or not necessarily in the setting of cirrhosis. And it doesn't follow a true imaging pattern. It, there, what we see with that kind of pattern is it,、uh, it's more of a fibrotic tumor that pulls the liver in. But we're not 100% confident when we see it. So for almost all biliary tract cancers, we usually need to biopsy, and that shows a different type of cancer cell than the one that we see with HCC or the more common form of primary liver cancer. Okay, that's a great explanation. Doctor, do walk me through a little bit the staging. It's obviously very complicated, and we don't have to go into all the detail. But, but you know, we, I think people people are pretty familiar with. Oh, I have a stage one cancer, stage two, stage three, stage four. It's a little bit different for HCC. So, walk me through briefly what that looks like, and then,、um, and then how that applies to biliary tract cancers too. Right. So, for patients with liver cancer, the staging system we use is different.、Uh, I have a lot of patients say they have family or they have friends who had cancer before, like other type of cancer. They will come asking me like, "What stage is my cancer? Is it stage one or is it stage four?"、Uh, for liver cancer, we use a complete different staging system. We call it the BCLC staging system. There are basically five stages. 
very very the earliest age is、uh, stage is BCLC stage zero for those patients who have very small like less than two centimeter very very small tumor. Usually the、uh, treatment options actually. Say resection, surgical resection, or just ablation. That is usually done by Dr. Sando. And then the second stage will be patients with、uh, BCLC stage A cancer. Usually, it's one single tumor in the liver, nothing else, or several tumor, but、uh, all were very, very small. For,、uh, for these patients, if they are a candidate for transplant, usually we do evaluate them for、um, to see if they can they can undergo liver transplant. And the goal with the transplant is to cure them from this liver cancer before transplant. A lot of them will need bridging therapy, which is like. Uh, what we call local regional therapy, the interventional radiologist will stick a needle into the liver and directly inject anti-cancer treatment into the liver cancer spot within the liver. And that is a BCLC stage A. So still very early, the goal of treatment is to try to cure them from this liver cancer. BCLC stage B patients meaning means that they have a lot of cancer spots within the liver, nothing outside the liver can、uh, the liver spot the liver cancer spots within the liver. Fortunately, have not grown into any vascular system within the liver yet. However, these patients, unfortunately, if they are not a candidate for transplant, and we cannot cure them, so treatment will be what we call palliative. Sometimes we do like local regional therapy, directly inject some medication into the liver cancer spots within the liver, or sometimes we do offer them with what we call systemic therapy, like something through the vein or a pill taken by mouth, with a hope of prolonging their life. And BCLC stage C patient, meaning that they have way much more advanced disease. Say the liver cancer spots within the liver has grown, invaded into the blood vessels of the liver, which means that the cancer cells can flow with the blood and flow to other parts of the body. Or if they have liver cancer, they already spread outside of the liver to the lymph nodes in the belly, to the adrenal glands, or to the lungs, to the bones. These patients、uh, all have BCLC stage C, which is the advanced stage. Again, for these patients, we are not able to cure them, but they still have good liver function. Remember, all these patients they have the majority of patients develop liver cancer because they have impaired liver function, like、uh, cirrhosis. But、uh, these patients still have still preserve liver function, so that we can still offer them treatment either at IV drip or a pill taken by mouth. And BCLC stage D, like the last stage of. Um, liver cancer actually has nothing to do with the liver cancer itself, but applies to patients with very, very poor liver function. Then most of the time, their prognosis is not really determined by the liver cancer itself, but to the determined by their liver function. So for these patients, because their liver function is too poor, unfortunately, we're not able to offer them any、uh, systemic treatment or any treatment options.、Great. So that's the thing for liver cancer. Back to the bile duct cancer. Bile duct cancer. We still stage it, stage it、uh, with a traditional what we call the TN, TNM. How big the cancer is? Has the cancer invaded into the the liver or the、uh, surrounding structures? If the tumor has spread to the lymph node outside of the liver, or if the tumor has spread to like distant parts of the organs, such as adrenal gland. Or like lymph nodes, or the lungs and the bones and things like that. So for bile duct cancer, it's still like stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four. But when it really comes to clinical practice, what is really meaningful is whether it's what we call like localized disease, whether patients can have a resection of this teeny bitty small bile duct cancer, or patients can have a. Sometimes we can offer transplant for certain type of bile duct cancer. So for those patients, if surgery is still an option on the table, then we're Talking about potential cure, 
Whereas if the bile duct cancer is what we call locally advanced or advanced bile duct cancer, then unfortunately we're not able to cure them and the treatment we offer them will be chemotherapy with the goal of trying to keep the cancer from growing and try to prolong their life. Okay. Thanks, Dr. Dale. That's a great explanation and, and kind of transitions well to the next conversation, which is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with Dr. Sando here, is for patients who have a liver cancer that is localized, so whether that's HCC and we're talking about BCLC stage A or, or maybe even B, um, or, or in, uh, biliary tract cancers for patients who it's um, localized and not, not advanced, um, let's, let's talk about some of the treatment options. So let's start with HCC, Dr. Sando. So what are treatment options for patients with a localized HCC? It's a great question, and it's um, it is somewhat tricky if you don't if you don't start out with the right mindset. And so, like Dr. Dew had explained, we use the BCLC C algorithm to help us kind of gauge where the patient is in terms of uh, their disease status. But for localized treatments with tumors that are confined to the liver, we try to gauge what gives the patient the best overall survival benefit. And whenever I explain this to patients, I say, you know, we're with your stage of disease, we might be going for we're going to try to wash everything away to help get you to a transplant if you have a more more disease in the intermediate stage. Or if you're in the early stage, we might be talking about doing a curative treatment from the get go. Again, all this is tailored towards getting the best overall survival. And whenever we talk about potential curative or complete, completely lethal options for HCC, there are four different types of, of options. We have ablation, where we actually put a probe into the liver and we burn the tumor like you would, like with the microwave energy technology. We can have a, a, a surgeon that can remove that part of the tumor to actually take care of it. We have transplant, which we'll get to in a little bit, but basically we not only take out the tumor, um, but we also take out the cirrhotic liver and replace it with an entirely new liver. And then another option that talks about complete eradication of tumor is radiation segmentectomy, or Y90. And that technique has gotten refined even over the last few years with more aggressive forms of radiation to prevent or to result in complete pathologic necrosis of the tumor. So when I talk to it about patients in certain stages, especially for BCLCA, our goal is to provide the best treatment option that gives you the best survival benefit down the road. What we know for all things is that Tumors develop in a background of cirrhosis. So even though we completely kill a tumor in a cirrhotic liver, it doesn't stop a nodule, a dysplastic nodule from developing at another site because HCC develops in a background of cirrhosis. So us working at a very large liver transplant center, for patients that are eligible for liver transplant, that tends to give us the best, us and the patient, the best long-term survival benefit because we take out both the tumor that has developed as well as the risk for other tumors to develop. And so um, a lot of our goals are tailored around making patients eligible for transplant. Now to, to get into transplant eligibility, we have to, we either have to shrink tumors down to be a certain size or we have to make certain tumors disappear. And that becomes that bridging strategy that Dr. Dew talked about. Um, then that's, that's our big practice. Our, our big goal of the practice is to try to get patients to transplant. But that might not be the best option for all patients. And we still have many other curative options, whether it be resection, ablation, or even radiation segmentectomy. And that's, 
Uh, so some things will go through the highway vasculature, the arterial vasculature, because those tumors feed off arteries. So we can actually go in and, and hijack the, the blood flow to them and kill it that way. We can stick a probe in and burn it. A surgeon can cut it out, or we can just replace the liver altogether. And then when we talk about biliary tract cancers, the best thing for patients is to cut that because they don't have a, a background of cirrhosis and that tumor just kind of developed on its own. The best thing for those patients is to have it surgically removed. That, If we can make that possible for anybody, that's certainly what we want to do. But that may not always be what's, what's feasible. And so the majority of biliary tract cancers are run by, by our oncology specialists, you know, Dr. Ms. Ryan, Dr. Dew, and they'll choose whether or not systemic therapy might be the best thing. Occasionally, we'll get involved from a local regional approach, whether that be ablation or Y90. Um, and then occasionally, there can even be um, a role for external beam radiation to the tumor. That was a great overview. And, and as you can see, this is complicated. We have a lot of options, a lot of good options. Uh, but ultimately, we have to remember, particularly HCC, that the background of cirrhosis is, is in many, if not most patients, is, is what's going to drive how long they live. So if we can replace the liver with a new liver that doesn't have that cirrhosis, often that will give patients the best chance for long-term survival, which I think you highlighted really well. Shifting gears to patients with advanced liver cancer. So whether it's spread so much in the liver or into the blood vessels that, that supply the liver, whether it's spread into the lymph nodes surrounding the liver or where it's spread to distant organs in other parts of the body, um, that would be advanced liver cancer. So, so Dr. Dew, starting with HCC, how do we manage these patients? So for patients with HCC liver cancer, uh, the treatment landscape actually has changed, I would say, dramatically over the past, I would say, three or four years or so. Like five or six years ago, when we talked to our patients with newly diagnosed advanced HCC, the prognosis was pretty grim. On average, people live for about like 10 months to 12 months or so. But ever since the emergence, the introduction of immunotherapy in the treatment of liver cancer, it really had, the prognosis had changed a lot. For in patients who responded very well to treatment, I've had a lot of patients actually has been getting the same treatment over the past two to three years and still doing great. Like still when we do a scan, we cannot find out any cancer at all. And all these patients have like pretty advanced cancer to begin with. Um, so one of our best frontline treatment options is a combination of an immunotherapy called atezolizumab and a what we call anti-VEGF inhibitor bevacizumab. Um, immunotherapy of um, atezolizumab, basically what it does is it do, it's not like chemotherapy that directly cures the cancer, but it tries to wake up people's own body and let people's own immune system attack the cancer. And then the um, bevacizumab, the other, the second agent, um, I explained to my patient, in order for a liver cancer to grow, it has to build new blood vessels around it first. Then it can get all the nutrients and everything and start growing and spreading. So the job of uh, bevacizumab, actually, it tries to block a liver cancer from building new blood vessels around it, hence like starving the cancers to death. So the combination of immunotherapy with um, bevacizumab actually has worked very well for a lot of patients and really significantly prolonged their life. For patients who are not able to get um, medications such as um, bevacizumab because, say, they are at bleeding risk or they are actively having bleeding and th or they have unhealing wound, things like that, then uh, sometimes we can use two immunotherapy uh, combination together. Each one works from a little bit different angle, and that works very well as well. And we also have other, all these, like the above, were all IV drip options. And we also have 
an oral option, a chemo pill that people can take by mouth to try control the liver cancer. Sometimes we 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 sequencing these two. So you know, if a patient, like you mentioned, recently since. 2019, when the approval came for this atezolizumab and bevacizumab, this really was a game changer, like you said. And if patients start off on that, and hopefully for, that works for a very long time, but most patients at some point it will stop working at some time. If their liver function is still good and they still, you know, feel quite well, we can then sequence and then use some of these other drugs that you mentioned.、Uh, most of the time, then we'd move to one of these oral pills that similarly tries to starve the. Cancer, cancer to death. Yeah. yeah, we we actually have a lot of options that we can rotate around. And then, what about biliary tract cancers? That's that's quite different in terms of our approach to treating these patients. Walk me through how that's kind of changed and what our what our standard is now. Yeah. So, bile duct cancer.、Uh, the mainstay of treatment for that is still traditional chemotherapy. There are new data coming out that combining chemotherapy with an immunotherapy different.、Uh, The valumab in the frontline setting can prolong people's lives. So as long as insurance allow, when insurance cover, we try to do a combination of chemotherapy and immunotherapy in the frontline. And we also have、uh, other chemo、uh, therapy options down the road as well.、Uh, I think the most important thing is all patients when they're diagnosed with an advanced bile duct cancer,、um, we routinely do it at Ashner here that we do a very comprehensive. What we call molecular profiling, basically testing a very comprehensive DNA mutation panel on the cancer. Sometimes we are lucky that for some patients we can find out certain DNA mutations or certain、uh, genomic signature of the cancer that we may be able to offer immunotherapy or what we call targeted therapy. Those are medications.、Uh, targeted therapy are medications specifically designed to target certain DNA mutations. So if people have these mutations, such as FGFR2 fusion or IDH1 mutation, we do have a, a pill that people can take that specifically target this mutation. So it's very, very important to have a genomic molecular profiling on an advanced bile duct cancer. I think that's such a crucial point, and I, I'm going to just reinforce it one more time: is that if you are diagnosed with an advanced bile duct tumor, particularly a cholangiocarcinoma, you need to get molecular profiling, full molecular profiling, to make sure. That you do not have other options outside of traditional chemotherapy that could be particularly effective for you, because the number of approvals we are getting for more and more treatments for these patients as we discover more and more mutations, and there are drugs that can really unlock a potential vulnerability in these cancers,、um, is really phenomenal. So you don't know unless you check. And、uh, like Dr. Du said, is、uh, we're checking on everyone here, and I would encourage you.、Um, If you're getting treatment elsewhere, just really, really talk to your oncologist about getting that checked. Yes. And th- and then I will kind of put in a plug here that every step of the way for any of these diseases, I, I think it's important to ask the question: Is there a clinical trial for me? And the reason is that because all of these treatments, when we talk about, oh, this is revolutionized, this has changed, this is the new standard, it, it all came because there was a clinical trial that said, can we do better than what we're currently doing? Um, so this bevacizumab, atezolizumab for HCC, you know, years ago, five years ago, that wasn't a treatment option. It became a treatment option because people enrolled in a clinical trial and found that this was actually better than the standard of care. So、um, I would encourage you,、uh, anyone listening or their family members, to really at least ask the question: Is there a clinical trial available to me? Not only for patients who haven't had any treatment before, but for patients who have had one treatment before, two treatments before. Uh, because those、uh, are, are the way we push the field forward, and may open up new options to you that really aren't available、uh, off the shelf. And transitioning into that, I want to just 
ask Dr. Sando, is there anything in the, the localized liver cancer world, whether it's a new technology, a clinical trial that you're excited about or you want to kind of bring up in this venue um, that, that you think is, is worth highlighting? Yeah, so I think that's great. You know, like you said, the um, our, we've made dramatic advances in the realm of HCC in the last, you know, 10 years, five years, three years. It's not really about new technology, and there's no telling what we'll see, you know, three years from now or next year. Um, right now, what we're seeing that's really kind of shifting the practice for treating localized cancer is – is more tailoring or being more aggressive with our local regional therapies. And so we are actually learning that we can go a lot, we can use a lot more radiation within a certain field to kill a cancer. And we, there was a recent study that was published last year that showed that when we doubled what used to be the normal baseline for radiation, we got the same, the, 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 all the complication rates were the exact same, but we found almost complete pathologic necrosis in almost every tumor that was treated when the radiation dose was doubled. So that's become the new standard for our practice. When we come in trying to treat these cancers, we actually use an incredibly hot dose of radiation. It has zero effect to the adjacent liver. It only affects the area that we're targeting. So we preserve the normal liver, but we're able to really, really get down and kill every tumor cell that's existing in that in that territory. And I would argue that our outcomes have dramatically changed because of that. Another one of the cool things is that, you know, with the advent of immunotherapy is we're starting to see that when we combine our forces, you know, like Captain Planet, we get our pow- all our powers combined, we, we realize that we're actually doing some dramatic things for patients. And that's probably been the best thing about our practice at Oshner is the involvement of everyone all at once. And so we can treat on the on the local regional side, and in some sometimes will completely kill the tumor, but preserve tumoral DNA. And then, if their patient is undergoing immunotherapy, there could potentially be an un, uh, letting the body start to have a immune stimulating effect towards any type of residual. Or, you know, we by combining our powers, we have certainly seen dramatic things for our patients. Patients that should have had aggressive cancers with less than a year of survival now have no cancer at all. And we had a lot of complete response from that as well, from that combination. It's amazing. And so um, that, I think we're going to start to see a lot of trials taking place. We're trying to start start up some of our own or enroll in some of the ones that are multi-site. And we're trying to get involved in those in Osher. And, you know, and I think it's the continued, the integration of all of our practices together has really done amazing things for our patients. Completely agree. (laughs) And Ling Ling, what about any clinical trials or anything exciting in the advanced stages uh, that you want to highlight? Bile cancer or liver cancer? Anything. Yeah, I think for liver cancer, just as uh, uh, Dr. Sando said, we're trying to combine both and probably move the combination of local regional therapy uh, and immunotherapy, systemic therapy to an earlier stage of liver cancer to see if we can prolong, like make them live longer, make them do better. And also in bile cancer, I think chemo is still the mainstay of treatment. So I think for um, clinical trial-wise, uh, we're trying to see if we can incorporate more like target therapy in treating the bile cancer and possibly moving the target therapy to earlier stage of bile cancer as well because we know that bile cancer is still a pretty bad disease with um, pretty grim prognosis that even at the resectable stage uh, after resection a lot of patients in a lot of patients the cancer still come back 
And then, uh, so we're trying to see if we can do anything to improve what we call the adjuvant treatment after surgery to make them live longer and decrease the risk of cancer coming back. Great, thank you. And for our next segment, what can I do to decrease my risk of liver cancer? So I'll start with the, you, Dr. Du. Anything a patient can do to reduce the risk of ever getting liver cancer in the first place? I think liver cancer is really the perfect example that uh, living a healthy lifestyle would decrease your risk of liver cancer. We know that a lot of patients drink a lot of alcohol. Eventually, that leads to like liver cirrhosis and dec- uh, increase the risk of developing liver cancer. So really try to cut down on the alcohol intake. And then also uh, metabolic syndrome, basically, is like people who are uh, obese, who have diabetes. Those really increase the risk of liver cancer. So try to start exercising. Um eat less sugar, maintain a very healthy body habits that will help decrease the risk of uh, liver cancer as well. And of course, uh, if you have hepatitis infection like hepatitis C, hepatitis B, it's always good to get those treated as well. And then uh, for patients who, like you already know that you have cirrhosis, like liver disease, liver scarring, then it's always good to establish care with a liver doctor, hepatologist. We have a group of wonderful hepatologists here in Ashner, and I follow with them, like Dr. Sandoz, they do the screening ultrasound every six months, uh, do the blood test, test for the tumor marker, AFP every six months. That will also uh, really protect our patients even when they develop liver cancer in the future. Hopefully the liver cancer can be caught in the very early and potentially curable stage as well. Now, of course, you have uh, personal risk or family history. Uh, always make sure that you're talking to your provider, primary care doctor, to make sure that you're being monitored uh, properly. But engage in physical activity, exercise 30 minutes every day, at least five times uh, a week, weight loss, healthy diet, lots and lots of fresh fruits and vegetables, less red meat, less processed meat, better protein, white meat, all those uh, really help uh, decrease the risk of liver cancer and live a better lifestyle. So all, all of your... Um Everything you see in New Orleans and diet-wise, just steer clear of that and uh, don't ever eat out. And, no, the seafood part is good, though. <laughs> <laughs> they make it tough here. And, and for our next recurring segment, how do we treat liver cancer at Oshner? So, Dr. Sando, I'll ask you this. Uh, what are we doing here at Oshner to treat liver cancer? So, I think what we'll do, when we treat liver cancer at Oshner, um, the key thing is that we have a multidisciplinary tumor board, specifically um, derived around treating liver cancer. And if it is probably what highlights Oshner to its finest. We integrate our oncologist, you two guys, Dr. Mizrahi and Dr. Du. We have incredible hepatologists. Important, even more important, we have wonderful transplant surgeons, interventional radiologists. And um, really, it's open to anyone. This This has been in place for well over 10 years. It predates me. Um, and it was established by our transplant surgeons, and it, it has resulted in some amazing outcomes for our patients. It's made us one of the busiest liver transplant centers in the country. But basically, because the patients that, that develop HCC have, have been found by the hepatologist, the hepatologist will bring a patient to the tumor board. We'll review all the imaging, all of the – we'll look at liver function, we'll look at stage of disease, and we'll review it as a team. And we'll come up with what we think is the best treatment option as a team whether that be surgery, transplant, um, ablation, Y90, yttrium radioembolization, chemoembolization, or immunotherapy, or maybe some combination thereof. And we come up with a, with a group consensus about how what's best to treat the patient. And then 
we go on, we treat the patient, and then that patient comes back and gets reviewed again at our tumor board. So that patient stays with us in our tumor board, our whole group, um, basically forever. And our goal is to, to constantly make sure that we are keeping those guys all on point. And it, it has resulted in some wonderful outcomes. You know, when it comes to treating advanced stage cancers or biliary tract cancers, that's also brought up to the multidisciplinary conference. It's, it's a little different. We're looking at clinical trials and possible enrollment for patients that might be potentially eligible for some more aggressive or curative treatments, whether that be resection or transplant, or whether systemic is the best option. But, you know, it's all, it's all done in a group setting. So everybody, it's a, it's a big participation, and it's done every week at Oshner. I want to just piggyback on what you said there and highlight a couple of things. One is that we see a lot of this, okay? So for better or for worse, we are we have quite a bit of expertise in liver cancer. Um, obviously for worse because we obviously wish we lived in a world with, without as much cancer, but for better because I think we are able to provide more expertise for our patients and better outcomes for our patients. The second point I want to make is that Dr. Sando and his, his colleagues in interventional radiology really run this, this tumor board and, and do a remarkable job, and probably he's too modest to say it, but um, the amount of time they put into being meticulous about looking through the historical records of these patients, looking at their scans over time, seeing any subtle changes that sometimes are not picked up on their initial scans, bringing that to our attention, offering the most advanced effective therapies is really, um, uh, you know, just kudos to them and the time and effort that takes um, and I think that's uh, really unparalleled. Uh, and the amount of expertise and dedication you're going to get in these weekly tumor boards is, is really um, uh, hard to uh, duplicate anywhere else. So thank you for that. Well, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I think it's it's everyone else that that does it too. It's the the transplant surgeons that push us hard. It's the it's my 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 co-interventional radiologists, the guys that that do it just as much as I do. And in you guys, I, that has been one of the biggest pluses was the getting oncology guy, our oncology support um, over the last few years with y'all. It is, it has led to dramatic, dramatic changes for patients. Yeah. We're actually, um, it's our honor to be part of this amazing team. For our next recurring segment, what should I ask my oncologist at my first appointment? So Dr. Du, as our oncologist here, what do you want patients to be asking you the first time they see you? Of course, I think a uh, patient needs to understand what's going on. Uh, what is the stage of my cancer? What type of cancer do I have? Is it a liver cancer, HCC, hepatocellular carcinoma, or it's a bile duct cancer? Um, what is the treatment plan? Do I need surgery? Do I need transplant? Or do I need like local therapy with uh, interventional radiology? Um, what is the goal of the treatment? That's very important. Is this the goal is to cure the cancer or the goal is what we call palliative, try to uh, keep the cancer from growing, keep it from spreading, and try to prolong my life in this way. And then if patients have advanced bile duct cancer, um, better to ask, like, has my cancer been tested for the full molecular profiling? That's what we talk about treating a bile duct cancer. It's very, very important to do all those DNA testing to make sure that we're not missing any uh, what we call targetable mutation that may, we may have an extra drug for. Uh, for liver cancer, HCC, it's less important. We don't usually do that. It's just because all the treatment that we are using a stand of care to treat liver cancer will be the treatment options if, say, the DNA profiling shows something. So we are using the best treatment already. And then, uh, of course, in, at any stage of the cancer, always ask, her, ask us, is there any clinical trial options for my stage of cancer? Like participation in the clinical trial when you're eligible is potentially open another, another door for you and give you extra treatment options that would not be available otherwise. 
And for our final recurring segment, fact or fiction. All right, I'll read a statement, and you tell me if this fact or fiction, and feel free to elaborate. So I'll start with you, Dr. Dew. Liver cancer only occurs in people who drink too much alcohol. Fact or fiction? Fiction. As we talk about, like, alcohol is one of the risk factors for liver cancer, but not the only one, like hepatitis infection, fatty liver disease, like obesity, diabetes, all these are risk factors for liver cancer as well. I have patients who never drink alcohol in their life still develop liver cancer because of other reasons. Right. And I would go far as to say the majority of liver cancer happens in people who are not over-drinking alcohol. Yeah, I agree. All right, Dr. Sando, putting you on the spot. Liver cancer should be treated with a liver transplant. Fact or fiction? That is it. A incredibly tricky question to answer, so thank you. Um, we can say almost fact. Um, again, what we talk about is we want to give patients the best chance at an improved overall survival or the longest overall survival benefit. And we know that if you were to look at everything across the board, liver transplant is probably going to give you the best overall survival benefit because you take out the cirrhotic liver and the tumor. But there are some patients that have other problems that may not let them get a liver transplant, whether it be issues with their heart or their body. And there's also a, a scarcity of livers, right? And there aren't enough livers to give to everybody that would be on the transplant wait list. So in reality, we would love to transplant people and replace all normal livers, but sometimes that's not always the best thing. But just because you can't get a liver transplant doesn't mean you can't get a curative treatment for your liver cancer. Because like we talked about before, even though liver transplant is one of the best ones, we still have cutting the primary tumor out, um, burning the tumor, or radiating the tumor de to death. And so we have great options that give us that. So pseudo fact. <laughs> I like that. All right, Dr. Dew, no systemic treatments are effective for liver cancer. Fact or fiction? It was true before 2008. So before 2008, we did not have any systemic therapy for liver cancer. Traditional chemotherapy does not work at all. So before 2008, the only thing, the only treatment options we have for advanced liver cancer at that time was what we call TACE, transarterial chemoembolization, that was usually done by interventional radiologists such as Dr. Sando. So that's a local regional therapy. So in 2008, we had our first pill that was semi-effective against liver cancer called serafinib. And we had this pill as our only option for a long, 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 long time. Until in 2018, we have a different pill, lenvatinib, that um, works similar, like the survival outcome is similar about a year or so. It doubles the response rate. So 23% uh, instead of 10% of patients will have uh, tumor shrinkage when they're taking this pill. But the most exciting news comes after that. In 2020, in, actually on May 31st, 2020, we had this like new article published in the best uh, medical journal, New England Journal of Medicine, that shows the combination of atezolizumab and bevacizumab significantly prolong people's life um, for people with advanced liver cancer. So that has been uh, one of the best treatment options that we have so far. And Ever since then, we also have a lot of other treatment options as well. So I would say that before 2008, 2008 we had no systemic treatment options effective for liver cancer. But especially after 2020, we have a lot of treatment options, I would say, fairly effect, very effective against liver cancer and definitely significantly prolong people's life. That's one of my favorite quiz questions for our radiologists is um, when, we, when we have our radiology residents, I, I like to ask them that because it's amazing that there weren't systemic mm. treatments available, you know, 15 years ago yeah. for patients with advanced HCC. 
And so I like to go over, we'll, we'll talk about the SHARP trial and then we'll talk about the immunotherapy trial in, in the New England Journal. And so it, that, it's amazing that, that we've now gotten to a point where we're really making a big impact on yeah. those patients. With it's really cancer. amazing that uh, right now when I'm seeing my new console of liver cancer patient, I can start painting a semi-rosy picture to them because it is true. Some of our patients did very well over the past few years. Exactly. All right. Our final factor fiction, Dr. Sano, this is for you. My liver cancer has been removed or it's been treated, so I don't need to be monitored anymore. Fact or fiction? Fiction. All right. So this is this is exactly what we've been talking about. And the tumors develop in a background of cirrhosis. And so even though that primary, that cancer spot has been treated and it could be gone and never come back, it doesn't stop another cancer from developing because we know that cancer is going to continue to develop in a background of cirrhosis. And so those patients will continue to be monitored. And after we treated somebody with liver cancer, even though the cancer has been entirely removed, we'll still follow those patients with scans every three months just to make sure that nothing else is going to develop. And we try to do that as routinely as possible. So every three months, you know, four scans a year for multiple years just to make sure that everything stays away. Even after a liver transplant, we'll follow these guys out. And it's a different surveillance algorithm. But even if we've transplanted people with liver cancer, we still follow those guys as well. Right. So definitely fiction. You know, once your foot's in the door in our our system, we're going to keep a close eye on you. Exactly. Um, well, thank you both. I thought this was a, a great kind of illuminating conversation, both for me, but I think for, for our patients and people wanting to learn more about this disease. So uh, Dr. Ling Ling Du, Dr. Tyler Sando, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having thank us. Thank you for having me. So if you or someone in your family has been diagnosed with liver cancer, I hope this episode can give you some guidance on the diagnosis, evaluation, and treatment options available. The Oshner Liver Cancer Treatment Team uses a collaborative, multidisciplinary approach to treatment of patients across all stages of disease with the latest surgical, interventional, radiation, and medical therapies to help patients not only survive, but thrive. We tailor our treatments to our individual patients and utilize the most up-to-date medical evidence to guide our recommendations. To schedule an appointment with a cancer specialist at Oshner, go to my.oshner.org. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. I'm Dr. Mizrahi with the Oshner Cancer Institute. I'll see you next time on the All In Against Cancer podcast.